So this evening, so this evening, I'd like to talk about awakening. And uh, first, I like to look a little at the term enlightenment. On the spiritual path, often we talk of enlightenment, and I think if we speak of enlightenment, I think this kind of conjure images which necessarily might not be so helpful because often there is this uh, feeling with enlightenment that actually we're going to lit up like a Christmas tree, you know? So you meditate, you meditate, and then suddenly you start floating, then you start litting up. <laughs> so I think we, in a way, have to be careful of the image, you know, it conjures, and it kind of, because in a way it kind of seems to set up certain expectation. So that's why I prefer to use the term awakening, awakening to something. Also to be careful, also the, often we have this uh, feeling that, um, with enlightenment, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like perfection. That you know, once we get this enlightenment, will be perfect. Or that once we get it, everything will be fine, will be sorted. And so, in a little, in, uh, in a way, looking little at enlightenment, like kind of some kind of magic, like a magic wand, and then the fairy enlightenment. <laughs> and so, in a way, to be careful, because of course, I think it's important to be inspired, in a way, by that idea of awakening. But if we have this strong expectation, it's like, you know, every two minutes we, sh we check, am I enlightened or not? And we kind of, kind of, it kind of gets a little fix, there is a little tension. And so in a way, to, to, to be careful between the difference between expecting something or aspiring or being inspired to something. When you aspire to awaken in a way, it gives you energy to walk on the path. But if you expect it, it kind of, you know, kind of freeze it, freeze a little around the objective. And before talking about awakening per se, I wanted to look a little at the different experiences we might have in meditation. Because I feel often when we meditate, we kind of, there, is, there seems to be such a strong emphasis on this idea, you know, of enlightenment, awakening. And so in a way, we kind of sit in meditation, generally waiting for something to happen. So we kind of, kind of waiting. Sometimes I think instead of meditating, we're waiting. <laughs> you know, so in a way, to, to, to be careful with that, you know, ah, is something happening? Am I starting to feel a little different? Or you might read all kinds of things in books, you know, that, oh, if you do meditation, you experience this or that, etc. So personally, I think it's important to see in a way that there are different things we might experience in meditation. Uh, we might first, I would say, experience meditative states. And it's when we, you know, we feel very quiet, very clear, and often also this experience of the heart opening or, or kind of a certain feeling of emptiness. And I feel what is interesting when we sit in meditation and we feel this quietness and this clarity, to be careful of our first movement at the beginning. Oh, this is it, this is it, you know. Awakening, shortly, shortly. We kind of get very excited and as soon as we say, oh, this is it, it's gone. You know, because again, there is this grasping. And I think to me, this is also part of the meditation to learn to be with these meditative states so that when they happen, we just are with them. And I would say a little like a mother holding a child. If it's too tight, the child will cry. If it's too loose, it will disappear. It will fall off. And so in the same way with the meditative state, the quietness, the clarity, we have to learn over time to just be with it, just as it is. And actually learning in a way to relax, learning not to grasp, just to be with it and to be conscious of it, aware of it as long as it lasts. And then, of course, like anything else, it is impermanent so it will change. When we feel the heart opening, 
again, to be careful. Uh, it is a wonderful experience. You know, you sit in meditation and suddenly you feel, I have no trouble with nobody. There is not one person you have trouble with. And you feel compassion and love for everybody in the universe. And again, to see, this is a wonderful experience to have. But at the same time, we cannot feel like this all the time. So we experience it, we are nurtured by it, and then it too passes. The experience of emptiness, this is a little different, because it's kind of a little more weird in a way. And sometimes you suddenly you have this feeling that your body dissolves. You have the feeling that you, you don't have any limit. Generally, we feel very solid. And instead, sometimes we feel very empty. And sometimes people come to me and say, oh, I was all empty. And they're often very frightened. I said, well, you know, you're still here. You know, you can, you know, you're still here. Don't worry. <laughs> you have not disappeared. <laughs> so, and actually, what, what it is, it's what I would call de-grasping. These states happen because we de-grasp. It's a releasing. It's not something fantastically mystical, I would say. It's just de-grasping, experiencing de-grasping. That if we're not grasping so much, then it's our heart open. We feel more quiet, we feel more clear, and we feel about ourselves in a very different way. Then another thing we can experience is insight. Is We kind of see something experientially that in a way we have never seen before. I mean, we could have seen it before, but we have not seen it before. And then suddenly it becomes totally obvious to us, something we've never seen. We say, ah, and we really mean it's, a, it's not a thought, it's an experience. Ah, you see something extremely clearly, experientially. And the thing with that is it's kind of when you see it, because you've never seen it before, again, because of the contrast, it feels very intense. It's like, like a, a moment. <gasps> and it's kind of like, wow, you know. But again, what is interesting in that, that insight, that understanding, the intensity of the seeing, the contrast in a way, disappears. And so we have to be careful to see that inside, they're not going to be with you as powerfully as in that moment all the time. What happens is that you see something very clearly, and then it is like a memory. You cannot have that same experience because, you, in a way, you cannot only have it once. It's new. You have it once. After, it's a memory, but also it's something you cannot unknow. It's something you know now. You cannot not know it. But you will know it in a kind of more um, vague way than when you had that first insight. And what is important with insight, in a way, is that they don't stay on the cushion. Because I think often that's what happens with insight. You, get, you sit in meditation and you have lots of insight. And, of course, it's nice. But what is really, actually, I would say the hardest is actually to integrate that this insight become organic in our daily life. That actually they make a difference to the way we live. And that, I think, is the hardest thing to do because of our habits. So in a way, we remember how we saw something, and then we, we feel, but why am I still caught in this? Because just the seeing is not enough. You actually have to kind of actively, in a way, bring it into your life. Otherwise, then it really is just a memory on a retreat. Then we can also experience what I would call mystical state. And then it's like suddenly it kind of infuses whole body and mind. For example, suddenly you might realize that everybody has a Buddha nature. And it's an amazing experience. Wow. And the thing with mystical state is that, again, it's very special, very intense, and very exciting. 
And you think, wow, everybody has a Buddha nature. This is it. We're all happy together, you know. And, and again, generally, it do not last. I mean, my last an hour, my last a week, my last two weeks. But after a while, again, the intensity, the excitement disappear. So it's, again, it's something that you know. It's something that you've seen, you've experienced. But again... What is interesting is that it might nurture you, it might make you feel different for a little while, but then it goes. It's kind of like the glow of that goes. And again, the difficulty is how do I integrate this in my daily life? What is it? The fact that everybody has a Buddha nature, can I see it in my neighbor who is so cranky or whoever, or in my I don't know, mother, father, or whoever you have trouble with. It's kind of in a way, we think we have had that amazing experience, and generally what we think is so intense, we feel we should be totally transformed by that experience. This is an assumption. And a lot of the time, it is not that transformative. I would say because of the habits. So now again, the challenge is to really integrate this to really in a way find a way to make it organic into our daily life and in a way that's why I think the three trainings are so important that yes to do meditation yes we can have certain experiences when we meditate but together on the path we need to cultivate wisdom we need to cultivate ethics and the three needs to be cultivated together so that we can really grow on the path. Meditation experiences will not be enough to transform us. I think we often feel this is what will do it. But I think it's very important to see we need the three together because we have a complex organism. My teacher, my Zen teacher, was really adamant about this, that we really needed to cultivate Ethics, meditation, and wisdom together. One, just one of them was not enough. The three had to be cultivated together. And these are really so, as I mentioned before, that you see I met different teachers, different people, and it's obvious to me that in a way you can have a great learning, you can have great experience, but it might not necessarily totally transform you. And I experienced that again and again. One experience was living with a, a teacher. We were in a Buddhist community. Great experiences, meditative experiences, great learning. I learned a lot from him. And he was so hard to live with. It was so difficult. He had no idea of the impact he had on others. Very interesting. He might have had self-awareness, but he did not have other awareness. So in a way to kind of see, I think sometimes there is places within us that actually meditative experience cannot reach. And that's why we need also the wisdom, we need also the ethics. And I remember my, what is interesting with my teacher, Master Kuzan, is that he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And you might think, well, one should be enough. <laughs> but, you know, he had three. And the way it, go, it works in the Zen Korean tradition is that, you know, when you, had an in, when you have an experience, a special experience, like a breakthrough, you go to your teacher and you tell the teacher, you know, what happened. Generally, you, you write a poem. And so Master Kuzan, you know, three times he had a certain experience. And when he gave his last poem, the third one, to his teacher, his teacher said to him, until now, I was your teacher. Now I am becoming your disciple. Because he realized that his disciple actually had, had a greater understanding than himself. And to me, this is very much one of the functions, in a way, of the teacher to kind of help the, the disciple to become teachers themselves, to become really even greater than the teacher. But what was interesting with a Master Kuzan, he had three awakenings, he was a great master, very uh, well, uh, 
renowned in Korea. And he could have thought, well, I have three awakening, and you can just, you know, take it easy. But not at all. To me, that's what was very inspiring. To the, he, would, he would meditate as often as he could. When we traveled in train, in planes, in boats, he would sit cross-legged. And he would say, hey, you meditate. I would say, oh, I'm too tired. <laughs> you know, I prefer to read the paper. But he, no, he would always sit. And uh, just before he died, a few months before he died, he was getting a bit weak. And we were walking together. And we stopped and we sat. And he said, you know, we never know how we're going to be when you die, when we die. And this is why we need to meditate to the last moment of our life, to be ready for our death. Even I don't know how I'm going to be. And what was very impressive, even though he had a stroke and he was half paralyzed, he meditated till the very end, till the very last minute. And to me that was very impressive because... It, to see that the awakening was not the end product, but actually what was important, it was the whole training for a whole life. So now what I'd like to, to look at a little is, in a way, how awakening was presented by the Buddha. And awakening, Stephen might have mentioned it, was presented in four stages. But what is interesting in this, about these four stages is that they're not about what you're going to gain. Because often when we think in stages, we think, oh, we're going to gain that, then that. It's kind of, you know, like, you know, you go for the BA, then the MA, then the PhD. You know, and each time, you know, you get something. But what is interesting with the four stages is that it's actually about what you lose. So actually the process about of awakening is not about gaining something, but actually is about losing something. And so to see that the, this awakening is not an ideal state, but actually it is a process, a process, I would say, of degrasping. De so in the first stage, what goes? What goes is first believe in self, then belief in rites and rituals and doubt. So belief in self. At the first stages is when we, we have a glimpse. We start to have a glimpse of ourselves as not this solid, fixed self. But we start to experience ourselves in a different way. We start to experience ourselves as a flow of condition. We start to see that we are actually a composite that actually we can have a certain kind of action on this composite, on this conglomerate, that actually, you know, we come together in our condition, out, outer condition. So we start to, to see, to experience we are not so fixed, we're not so solid, we do not exist independently. And so you kind of, in a way, start to be this loosening of this kind of uh, feeling of self. Then belief in rites and rituals. For us, it's not very important. I mean, rites and rituals, we can take them, we can live them. But at the time of the Buddha, this was really major. Because at the time of the Buddha, in a way, a lot of the spiritual practice were ritual. Ritual to have purity, ritual to keep the world going. I mean, the, the ritual were what, in a way, make you a spiritual person. And especially if you were in a certain caste, then you had to do certain ritual. And so, in a way, the Buddha was breaking with that. He said, you know, your worth does not depend on ritual. Your worth depends on your action. He, so he said that the rites and ritual are not magic. They are not an end in themselves. He, do, he did not say not to have rites and ritual because he, he told the monk to recite the Vinaya, to, to do things together. So as a means to get together, he had no problem with rites and ritual, but just as an end in themselves, as this kind of idea of magic, in a way. That in a way, the rites and ritual are going to give us salvation. 
then doubt. At this, the first stage, doubt goes. And I think it goes back to what we talked in the discussion about great faith. That actually, it's a moment where we really, in a way, at the beginning, why do we meditate? Why do we go on the spiritual path? Because we think either we saw other people do it and we think, why not? Either we think, well, you know, I think I should improve or whatever. We generally have all kind of reason for doing it, kind of good reason. But actually, I think this often the kind of, kind of quite superficial reason. And I think the faith is actually developed in the meditation. That as we meditate, actually I would say an act of meditation is an act of faith in ourselves, in our potential. Of course, also in the meditation itself. Because if you do meditation and it doesn't make a difference to your life, then maybe you have to take something else. But in a way, it's, it, it's kind of this, you don't have any doubt about your potential anymore. You don't have any doubt about the fact that you can do this method, you can experience it. And to me, this we experience after a little while. Suddenly we see ourselves doing something and we see, ah, something has changed. Something is different. For me, it was uh, uh, within, it was in the early day of being a nun and uh, sitting with the, the nuns, uh, the Buddhist nun there. And every day I had to do a job. Four o'clock, like you hear, I had to go and uh, wash the bathroom. And every day there was another nun who was in the bathroom, it was a communal bathroom, and I had to clean around her. And first, of course, I said, could not you come at another time? She said, uh-uh-uh, I have to do some uh, chanting. I need to be pure. So what could I say to that? So every day, I would, you know, in the day I would do meditation. What is this? What is this? I would not think about the bathroom or anything. <laughs> and then 4 o'clock, contact, feeling. Ah, oh, she's here again. You know, I'm really... Then back up. What is this? And uh, I did this for two weeks. And then after two weeks of just, you know, this thing, suddenly I went one day, four o'clock, same sight, she was there, same contact, and no bad feeling tone. It was, ah, oh, she's there, I am here, and it's totally fine. There was no grasping, there was no rejecting, there was nothing. It was just, ah. Oh, and this showed me actually that it worked. The meditation worked because I had not spent the time, I should not be like this, I should, not at all. I would just be angry at four o'clock. Apart from that, I did not think about it. And so I saw how the meditation underneath, you know, at work, I kind of released something. So finally, when there was a contact, there was no aggravation. There was kind of, you know, a peacefulness about it. And that. When I saw, oh yes, I can do this. This is working. And to me, in a way, this was the start of what they call in Zen the great faith. When you don't have any doubt anymore about yourself, about the meditation. Then there is a second stage. And in the second stage, greed and hatred are weakened. And to me, what I think this might be about is that at this stage, exaggeration goes. In a way, when I talk about the grasping, you know, when we grasp, generally we exaggerate. And so in a way, I think at this stage, the exaggeration starts to go. So we can come into contact with things in a different way. And twice I had a, an experience when I saw that, kind of in a way, go. And the first one was, again, early on, going to a bank. I went to a bank. I was changing money in Korea during the free season. And the bank teller gave me too much money. And my first reaction was grasping. Great. One against the capitalist system. You know, and for me, too. More for me, too. <laughs> and so I was going away. Me, me, yeah, yeah, this is great. Wonderful. 
And then I stop. And I realize I can't do this. Because this is going to, to hurt the bank teller. And so I, compassion, in a way, compassion, in a way, dissolves the exaggeration, dissolves the grasping, and then I went to give the money back. And to me, I saw that moment from going to grasping and then exaggeration to just, okay, this is not my money, I give it back. Or when we have this experience with um, something which is really, we, we can't stand it, we can't stand it. I used to have that when I was a house cleaner for a while, after I stopped being a nun, came back to England, I was a house cleaner. And my greatest fear was the turd in the toilet bowl. (laughs) (laughs) So I would always kind of, you know, come, open it, is something there or not? And so in a way there was this exaggeration. (gasps) And one day, I was uh, doing a retreat, but I still had to do as a house cleaning, as a job. So I go to the bathroom, I open the toilet bowl, and there is a big one. <laughs> and I look at it. And I say, hmm, this is a form. It has arisen upon certain conditions. <laughs> it is not appropriate for it to be there, so I still have to flush it, which I did. But there was no exaggeration whatsoever. It was just I could engage with the thing as it had a reason. And to me, this is in a way a little, I mean, this is a minor thing, but I think it shows, it's a little what this, I think this stage is about. It weak, it's, we're not so, ah, oh, I want this. Or, oh, I can't stand that. And it's more, ah, what is going on? And we kind of engage at what we call a level. We can engage at kind of a more level-headed way with whatever we encounter at this state of weakening, greed, and hatred. And then we can engage more with what is skillful, what is not skillful, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. And then there is a third stage. And that is, at that stage, greed and hatred are totally dissolved. They totally go. And to me, this is an amazing state to think about. I'm not saying that I have experienced it often, but I think it's such a... To think about that, to think about a stage when we don't go for nor against. We have such immediate reaction upon contact. I am for this, I am against that. This is a very basic... I mean, you can experience it, when you watch a football match and you have no interest in football, like me. One time I experienced that. I went down to the living room to say hello to my mother. She was watching TV. There was some football match on. I sat to just spend a little time with her. Within two minutes, I was for the blue against the red. But I did not care about it. But I, w- I saw how I am for this. I am against that. It's so quick. And I think the Buddha is talking about this, that finally there is a stage where the, there is no, the movement of the mind, of the heart, of the body are not for or against anything. They just, in a way, it's a different kind of encounter. We kind of encounter, it's not that we don't encounter the world, we encounter the world, we respond to the world, but we respond to the world in a different way. It doesn't mean that we won't have wants and needs. But I think it kind of, we start to see what is it I want, what is it I need. And we start to kind of look at things in a different way. Instead of, I am for this, I am against that, I want this. And it's more, you know, what is necessary? Again, what is appropriate? And so I think what we have to be careful is that if all greed and hatred are gone, you might think, but what about my survival? I don't think the Buddha is saying that we are not going to take care of ourselves. We are not going to take care of others. But we'll do it in a not such self-centered way. So I see in a way the percentage goes down to 50%. We can take care of ourselves because if I don't, Nobody else is going to do it. And at the same time, there is also space for others. 
So this no greed, no hatred doesn't mean we are automatons, we are not robots, but that we are in the world in such a different way. I would say in a such a much more spacious way. So, so, so much more can be able to engage with the whole of it. Then you might say, but then what is left? And to me, that's what I find fascinating about these four stages. You know, you would think everything is gone. No. And so it's three more things to go. And the last stage, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance go. And you might think, but wait a minute. First stage, belief in self go. How come? you still have conceit. And to me, this is in a way the beauty of these four stages. It shows us actually that there is ooh, lots of things to work with. <laughs> you know, and that the belief in self might, go, might have gone, but there might still be a little conceit. I am like this. I am like that. And that in a way we identify with conditions. For many years, I lived in Totnes. And what's fascinating about Totnes is that about once a year, you have a guru who appears, he or she appears on the high street. And they say, I am enlightened. And then everybody follows them. It's fascinating. So you, generally, I would know that there was one because people would start to talk in a different way, either talk about freedom or whatever, the kind of the late motive of the latest guru. But I think one has to be very careful of this. I am enlightened. This kind of, you know, uh, Huineng, the great uh, Zen patriarch said, he who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he was under delusion. So I think we have to, to see there is still this I. I got it. I think often when somebody says, I am enlightened, I got it. Because this is one thing, actually, in the, on the Buddhist path. That's one of the rules of the monks and the nuns. They must never talk about their achievement. And for example, Master Kuzan never said he had an awakening. We said it. He never said it. He said, I wrote a poem. <laughs> That's all he did. So in a way, to be careful with that. I am this, I am that. Then restlessness. Even there might still be a little kind of unsettlement, a little kind of excitement, and that goes. And then also ignorance totally goes. And ignorance basically is about the three characteristics. So at this stage, one really know, has really experienced fully impermanence, has experienced fully unreliability, has experienced fully the non-self, emptiness, conditionality. And to me, actually, the, these three, to really experience them, actually are what then really give rise to wise compassion. And that's why it's so important in the meditation to really notice the changing nature, Notice unreliability, notice conditioned nature, because then it, it will really change the way we feel about ourselves, the way we feel about the world, and really there will be that uh, compassion arising. And to finish with, just to, to mention that in terms of awakening, there is actually three stages in Buddhism. And I think that is interesting to just briefly mention. The first, the first kind of idea about awakening in Buddhism was awakening of the Buddha. And again, it was very much seen within the rebirth, within the many lifetime framework. And so there was this idea that there was just would be one Buddha which would be totally awakened and would have to go through many, 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 many lifetimes to finally get to the last life where he would attain awakening. And this, my problem with this framework is that in his last life, in order to have the great awakening, he had to be reborn as a man. 
So ladies, forget it. <laughs> Personally, I have a little trouble with, you know, sexed awakening. But, I mean, this was, I think, was the time, the culture, the more of those times. But then, over time, over the century, then started another idea of awakening. That actually, now it was not talked about the amazing awakening of the Buddha, but that actually in one lifetime, one could have an awakening and become a Buddha. So and then awakening was seen as a seed, that we had all the potential within us. All we had the seed of awakening, and the only thing we need to do would to practice so that then the seed could flower into the tree of awakening. And then time passed, and then you had another idea about awakening. And that idea was that everybody was awakened. So then the, it was not a potentiality anymore. It was you, everybody, had the Buddha nature, and everybody had awakening. And then the only thing to do was to see it was to realize it. And this was very much in the Avatamsaka Sutta, where it said, sentient beings are Buddhas, Buddhas are sentient beings. And what was interesting is that I met a nun which studied uh, deeply the Avatamsaka Sutta. And when I asked her what was her practice, she told me my practice is to be a Buddha. And I said, oh, how you do that? And she said, well, in the morning, I get up, I do a little meditation, and then when I go out of the monastery, I have the intention to have the wisdom and the compassion of a Buddha. And that's what I try to do. And then when I come back in the evening, I review the day. How Buddha-like was I, how sentient being-like was I. And then she starts again. That's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah, but I think, in a way, it's what one would call wise discrimination. And I'll, um, I'll talk what a little... Based on if it's not, hmm? What can that be based on if it's not like or dislike or want or not want? Well, it, it can it be... It has to be skillful Appropriate, inappropriate, wholesome, and wholesome. Actually, that's what I'll, I'll talk more about it the, on Saturday night. But because that's what, in a way, the benchmark of the Buddha was. Is it wholesome? Is it conduce, conducive to wisdom and compassion? Is it unwholesome? Is it conducing to harm, etc.? But I think we also have to, uh, to differentiate. I think we have to be careful not to be too literal. You know, I think, uh, I mean, there is example. Uh, possibly Stephen mentioned them, example of when the Buddha actually was uh, a little stern when uh, his cousin uh, tried to take over. And he said, no way. You know, and he obviously did not think it was a good idea. <laughs> and I don't think it was not because he did not like it, but it's more he did not think that it would be helpful for the, for the monks and the nuns because his cousin he did not think was very wise. So in a way, it's kind of, our benchmark generally is, I like it, I don't like it. And what is interesting for me that for many years I lived in community. And generally you have the idea that you care for someone because you like him. Why do you like someone? Generally because either they share your views or they're nice to you. But what was very interesting living in community is that you might not like certain people because they generally had different ideas from you or they did not agree with you or whatever. 
But what was interesting is that because you live together, because you, you got to know each other, because you shared that intention of wisdom and compassion, actually you cared for them very deeply. And that's where I learned that, you see, I don't necessarily I have to like somebody in order to care for them. I think like and dislike, often it's, it's so many different conditions coming together. And if we just act upon our like and dislike, I think it's a little kind of, we are very limited, I think. Then there is back to the want. I want, I don't want. Well, generally it's based on I like, I dislike. But again, it's a difference between I want and I need. Because I think, in a way, we need. The Buddha was very clear. What is very interesting with the Buddha, he was very clear that his monks, I mean, at the time of the Buddha, there were monks who were much more ascetic than the Buddha's monks and much more rigorous and much more pure. But the, and people really thought, you know, this was a business. But the Buddha was very clear. What he wanted was a middle way. He did not want his monks and nuns or the lay people to be extreme. Either extreme desire or extreme enjoyment, indulgence, or extreme renunciation. He was for the middle way. And so he said for the monks and the nuns, which I think can be applied to everybody, they needed, they needed four things. They needed food, they needed clothes, they needed shelter, and they needed medicine. But at the same time, they did not need too much of that. So then a the, lot of the rule of the Vinayas are very much about, you know, you, you can do with three robes and you can do with one meal a day. And then what was interesting for the lay people, he did not tell lay people, don't work. No, no, he was very keen for the lay people to work and to have a good livelihood. And he said, it was interesting, in one text he said, your wealth, you divide in four parts. One part, you keep for possible future bad days. One part, you give to others. And two parts, you keep for your family well-being. So again, he was not, you know, he was not saying, you know, be total renunciate. That was for the monks. But the lay people, it's just he was aware we need, there is basic needs that we have. But then nowadays in our modern world, it's very hard, you know. Do I, do I need a television or not? I got a television, then what can, do I need, uh, I don't know, four fantastic big flat television or, you know, medicine? Do I need the latest things or... So again, then it becomes, I think, more ethical. You know, what are my needs? When, once the basic needs are covered, you know, what do we do? What, in, and then that I think where it becomes a little difficult ethically. And then each of us have to see what's our limit. And at that level, I think the, the Buddha talked about, you know, kind of having a simple life, but... Everybody can have different simple life, but in a way it's kind of looking, how can I simplify in a certain way within whatever framework? There is a different simplicity if you have three children than if you don't have any children, and etc., etc. Then, uh, okay. yes? I think as a skillful mean for that moment, it was a good idea. But I think what is very important to see that no method is, is good for everybody. The breath is not good for everybody, etc. Et I think it's very important. So personally, I would say with the question, what is this? There is generally three reactions. First reaction, 
oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. So do it. Next reaction, what is this? What is this? Why am I asking this stupid question? <laughs> don't do it. Really don't do it. One does not have to do it, you know? And then the third reaction is interesting because it makes one a little anxious. It has that effect on certain people. And those people, I say, don't do it very much. Just do the breath and time to time bring the question if you want. But I would say, if you, if you cannot, in a way, get the question a little down and then it stays in your head, then it gets very, very heady. And that's why I would say don't do it, you know. You might feel more comfortable with the sound or with the breath or, what, or the loving kindness, which I will introduce tomorrow. So that's what generally what I encourage you to do is to try it for one sitting. And if it really doesn't work, let it be. You don't have to force yourself. And, and I think what you did, you know, was a skillful mean. And I think personally, it's very important. We give suggestions. And then you are the one having the experience. And to me, I have great faith in people's potential. And I think you suddenly decided, I have to stop this. Let's unplug it. I thought it's a very good idea. <laughs> and it was a way. I think your, your whole organism was wise and decided, hey, I'm going to change, do something different there. And I think it's very important to listen to that. But I don't think you need to do that all the time. And maybe just doing the breath or another method, which is uh, fit you more, would be better. Yeah? Um, I really like this kind of uh, quite modest, kind of subtle approach to awakening you were, you were telling us about. And you know, the things that you've described in your own life that um, you felt changed you in some way were actually quite small and, and quite subtle things. Um, but the, the question I had, had was about relationships. Um, and I was really interested in what you said about one teacher who had very good self understanding, but really struggled when it came to other understanding. And it suggested this difficulty with relationships, which often all of us have. <laughs> um, and I, I read this book by Jack Cornfield called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, where he goes and interviews all these spiritual teachers about what happened after their A lot of them describe so much trouble in their relationships and going through breakdowns and marriage breakups. And I guess I'd just like to hear your reflection, maybe a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about this in the last day, perhaps. But actually, bringing these lots of quite solitary practices and solitary activities into our relational engagement with others, which is surely one of the key things for spiritual work. Personally, I would say totally. You see that? That's what. That's why. We don't put so much emphasis on the meditative state because to me what is more important is that you develop the concentration, you develop the inquiry, you develop the creative awareness. And then for that creative awareness in a way to have power, you need to bring it in your daily life to everything you do. That it be the way you, you are with your partner, the way you are with your co-worker, the way you are with your children, or whatever. I think to me it's very important that this is only a training. You're kind of training certain muscle. And I would say you're training basically the de-grasping muscle. Because to me, if we, if often the problem in relationship is because of fear. That's one main one, fear. And at the same time, Another problem in relationship, and we want to be seen by the other in a certain way. Also, the problem is that one of our main problems is we feel we are the center of the universe. This is a big problem. You know, we think the center of the universe, and so we think the world go around us, so that if somebody does something, it's because of us. Well, no, no, it's because of them. You know, and I think, to me, the, the, the meditation helps us to, to kind of dissolve a little of that and kind of become more ordinary. I think to me the little the problem with the emphasis on the meditative state is that he continued to feed this idea, I am special. When actually to me the point of the meditation is to realize we are ordinary. 
and to in a way revel in our ordinariness. Doesn't mean that we don't have a potential, we have a potential, but we are ordinary. And so in a way, to try to, 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 to move a bit from the pedestal, because either we are the greatest, either we are the most terrible, well actually we are generally average, you know? And to be careful of that, in a way, feeding into this kind of exaggerated sense of self, but then building up instead what I would call a stable and open sense of self. And then when we meet the other, we are interested, not so much for the sake of the self, but because here in another being, I share my life with or I is there. And so in a way to be interested in that person and to, to, to be aware of them, not for myself, but where they are. And that's where, to me, the listening come in. Listening as a kind of a, a, a way of being, to kind of be aware of others, aware of self, but also aware of others in a really other-centered way, instead of having constantly kind of this refraction from self to other back to me. And then trying to, 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 to see we are different. At some way, we're so similar. And at some way, we... We think differently. So because somebody thinks differently doesn't mean that they don't like you, but they have different ideas. And so no, in a way, opening to what I would call a more multi-perspectival, complex world, and then being more ready to play with it. To me, that's also part of the meditation, to be more playful, to be a little less serious and say, okay, let's see how it goes. If I make a mistake, I learn for it. And so I would say, no, I would say in terms of relationship. I mean, in my book, Breaking Free of Habit, I have a whole chapter on relationship because I think it's very important that this is not just uh, for myself, but I cannot, as Stephen has a book called Alone with Others, one part of ourselves is alone, and at the same time, we are with others. And so we need, in a way, to work on the two levels work on ourselves, but also work on our relationship. And to see, you know, it again is back to awareness, awareness of the effect of others on myself, effect on myself on others, trying to see how can I, you know, bring some lightness, spaciousness, creativity in it. But it's a big subject. But I possibly on, uh, I can touch upon it on, uh, on Saturday. And I have to stop here, and uh, now there is walking meditation without rain. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.